Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics, a multi-billion dollar investment. And we're delivering a national anchor for Canada's electric vehicle supply chain. The federal government bets big on electric batteries, committing a reported $13 billion for a Volkswagen plant to be built in St. Thomas, Ontario. Will this secure jobs for the future? Will it have the economic benefits Ottawa is hoping for? We'll speak to our weekend journalist panel about the subject. Also... With the Public Service Alliance on strike, other public unions are joining the pickets and explaining why many federal workers are frustrated with the Trudeau government. Coming up, we'll speak with union leader Jennifer Carr. And the Alberta writ will soon be dropped, but how are things looking for the Alberta Premier Daniel Smith and the provincial NDP leader Rachel Notley? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The federal government is putting a lot of money on the line, a reported $13 billion to help Volkswagen build a new battery plant in St. Thomas, Ontario. It has the potential to be the automaker's biggest gigafactory in the world and could provide tens of thousands of direct and indirect jobs in the years to come. Still, not everyone is convinced of the investment which the Prime Minister addressed Friday. Do we want to throw up our hands and say, oh, it's just too tough out there. The world is too complicated. Canada is broken. We're never going to be able to succeed in this. Let's get really mad instead. Sorry, anger doesn't deliver this plant in St. Thomas. Confidence, hard work, optimism, and a willingness to invest in Canadians and in the brightest possible future for all. That's why we're here today, and that's the work we're going to continue doing as a government with our friends and partners to build a better future for all Canadians. With more on the Volkswagen announcement and the other stories of this past week, we're now joined by Robert Fife, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, Tonda McCharles, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, and Catherine Levesque, Parliamentary Reporter with the National Post. Good to see all three of you. Nice Thanks to see for you. having us. Uh, Tonda, I'm going to start with you here because it was interesting to see the number of swipes the Prime Minister was making uh, against Pierre Polyev during the announcement in St. Thomas, Ontario. Uh, but Polyev, uh, criticized by the Prime Minister, uh, in part because Polyev has been critical about the amount of money put into this plant. Mm-hmm. Was it necessary to invest the billions of dollars given the fact that, you know, the federal government has already signed battery deals with Stellantis and Ford? Mm-hmm. Well. I mean, I think that's going to be the billion dollar, multi-billion dollar question, was it necessary? Look, what's interesting also about the fact that they're prepared to throw up to 13 billion at this plant in securing its arrival in Canada is, is also that it seems to be have been a complete change in strategy since even the budget. The government has been telling us that they're not going to do what the U.S. is doing, that they're going to invest at the outset in uh, stimulating production and drawing companies here. Uh, now, all of a sudden, it's many, many more billions than anyone had thought uh, and at the back end matching what the US has done um, if it if it does succeed in not just bringing this plant here but in spawning a whole broader industry 
you know, down the road, we'll all look back and say, yes, it was a good investment. But right now, it looks like billions of dollars that people were not advised it was going to be. And uh, I think that the questions being raised about how much transparency we're getting on it are valid questions uh, and questions this government really doesn't like to answer. Mm -hmm. Bob, what do you think? Because again, Pierre Polyev, I, I think of, of just last month, he was on Twitter essentially saying, why is all this money going to a foreign company? Does he have a point or is he on the wrong side of history? Well, he does have a point that it's taxpayers' money. How is it being spent? How does it work out? In fact, he wrote uh, today to the uh, uh, Parliamentary Budget Office to say, look, can you provide us with some analysis of this to see if there's value for money out of this, which I think is quite legitimate. Uh, look, I mean, $13 billion for the, uh, for the battery plant, $700 million to build the plant, uh, that works for about 3,000 workers that's four, the, the amount of money going there is four times the salary of, one, of the employees, which works at like $456,000 per year per employee. Now, if, uh, to uh, Tonda's point, if uh, it, it, and Volkswagen says this could become the global uh, supplier of electric batteries to Volkswagen, if that is the case, and there's, you know, 30,000 or more spin-off jobs in decade time, then we will all be saying, Great, good decision. But a lot of these things, we all, there's a history with a lot of those tax incentives. They don't tend to work out. Now, you know, I, I, the jury's out, but certainly I think Paulie has, has the point to be saying, look, we need transparency. Particularly, if I may, so if those jobs, if there, if there are research and en engineering jobs that come there and not just people assembling uh, batteries, mm -hmm. Well, that's real value added, but I, they haven't said whether that's the case. Yeah, although it's interesting, you know, Catherine, as we, we looked at the announcement today, uh, there in and amongst the people speaking to the audience was the local Conservative MP, as was the the the, the, uh, the provincial government, Ontario's government, which is a progressive Conservative government. And the government. mayor is a former and the Conservative. Mayor. Absolutely, who the, who the Prime Minister noted, better to see you here than in the House of Commons. <laughs> but, but, you know, all these Conservatives are in the room. Does that present a problem for Pierre Polyev? I think so. And I, I don't think Karen Vecchio, uh, the, the MP who was there, had a great time because, you know, Justin Trudeau basically pointed at her and said, see, maybe you should be convincing uh, your own leader, you know, of the importance of uh, of these subsidies. Uh, so, look, the, I, I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, the prime minister felt the need to kind of point out the different types of conservatives, right? You know, the clearly the, the person leading the uh, Conservative Party of Canada is a populist, you know, he's kind of going out and, and, and you know, talking down on all these uh, investments. And then on the other hand, you have, uh, you know, Doug Ford, progressive conservative uh, premier saying, well, look, actually, we, we want this money. We want these investments. And this is, you know, these are good jobs. So I thought it was interesting that he felt the need to point that out. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's necessarily good news for Pierre Poilievre, right? Because, you know, people have just reelected Doug Ford. You know, I think he's doing relatively well. And uh, Pierre Poilievre is definitely not the same type of conservative as of right now. I, I would also point out that Karen Vecchio, you know, also it, it put her in an awkward position also because she did not support Pierre Polyev in the last leadership race. She supported Jean Charest. So uh, Mr. Trudeau really knew what he was doing there. He was kind of pointing out the, you know, the differences between the different uh, conservatives. It just seemed movements. like a bit of a, a partisan rant, frankly, in mm, a venue and at an event where conservatives under Doug Ford's government had come together with the Liberal government to produce what the governments are arguing is a great and a unified venture. And then mm -hmm. to go on a partisan 
sort of rant against the federal opposition in Ottawa, I was I was thinking if are the VW executives I mean they're probably counting their billions, but are they rolling their <laughs> eyes? You know? Yeah, and you know Polyev hasn't said don't give the money. He's yeah. just saying like, how, where's the value here? You know, I mean, not how much a, per uh, job? Yeah. And tell right. us, right? Well, you know, the prime minister might still be stinging, you know, from 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 the question period on Wednesday, because uh, as we we talk about the VW plan, I also want to talk about uh, the prime minister's trip to Jamaica, because it was uh, Pierre, uh, excuse me, Justin Trudeau who was taking it on the chin on Wednesday over that issue, going to Jamaica, uh, staying with uh, family friends as he describes them, but still. Uh, wealthy donors to the Trudeau Foundation. So, so Bob, when you think about the controversy this has caused, what's more problematic here? The fact that the, that this is tied to people who donated to the Trudeau Foundation, or is it the fact that the Prime Minister optically went on this very lavish vacation when most Canadians cannot afford to go on a vacation? I think it's the, the latter one. Um, and if you talk to experienced Liberals, they would say to you, I would advise them not to do it. Uh, so somebody in the Prime Minister's office, or perhaps his wife Sophie, is saying, we're going, I'm going to go, uh, and I don't care what the public thinks, because it, it does send uh, a message of, of, I'm an elite, I'm very privileged, uh, at, particularly at a time when economic conditions in the country are not that great. But, you know, Trudeau doesn't seem to care. Um, I, will, I want my vacations, and I want to uh, uh, party and, and vacation with very wealthy people, and uh, you know, the rest of you can eat cake. <laughs> well, what do you make of it? Because, you know, uh, Tonda, because the, the Prime Minister does make the argument, it was cleared by the, the Ethics Commissioner, although the they most recent... the word cleared, right? Yeah. They say, we ran it by the Ethics Commissioner to ensure we Fair were following enough. the Fair. rules. And the rules are that if you're a real friend, which he wasn't in the case as it was determined by the Ethics Office, in the case of the Aga Khan mm -hmm. vacation in Barbados, uh, you know, a few, several years ago, uh, in this case, they've deemed it, yeah, it was a family friend for legit, but still the, the Prime Minister might have considered the optics and even offered to pay a going Airbnb rate, for example, in order not to be looking like they're taking gifts from wealthy friends. I think it is the Liberals' kryptonite, this stuff, this elitism. It is an easy target for the opposition. And so why does he uh, allow himself to be vulnerable to those attacks? I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. To Bob's point, I think it's probably true that they just shrug their shoulders and figure he can breeze his way through this. Because, look, he hasn't suffered from more damning uh, allegations. Back in the blackface scandal, a lot of Canadians essentially didn't uh, run him down for that because they decided he wasn't a racist. Well, in, by doing this, he is declaring he's rich and he's got rich friends and he's got elite circles to move in. And seemingly, though, he thinks Canadians will shrug that off. To Bob's point about the economic conditions facing most households, will they? We'll see. Yeah, well, you know, Catherine, the, the big question is why, as Tonda is saying, because uh, again, to remind Canadians, it's, it's just not this trip. It was the trip to the Aga Khan's mm -hmm. island. It was also being in Tofino on the first day of mm -hmm. uh, Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, what is it about this prime minister, or perhaps his office, that allows the t these types of scandals to keep happening? Well, I mean, essentially, since he, he's been prime minister, Justin Trudeau has had about the same group of advisors, and he's had Katie Telford, you know, who's been there for uh, years and years. And uh, basically, his inner circle has just gotten smaller and smaller, and there aren't as many diverse voices, maybe, or, you know, people from the outside telling him, hey, maybe you, should, you shouldn't do that. But I, I will say in, in Radio Canada's piece, uh, Radio Canada broke the story uh, this week, um, you know, th there apparently was discussions in the prime 
prime minister's office. And, you know, some people said, well, maybe maybe we should reconsider or, you know, it's not clear where the disagreement was exactly. My understanding is it might have been about, you know, should we consult the ethics commissioner or not uh, on this trip? So uh, I think, you know, some liberals are just getting very, very uh, concerned, increasingly concerned. And we're hearing more and more, you know, people asking the question, as it has been for years, you know, why is Katie Telford still there? Is she, you know, still the right person to be the prime minister's chief of staff? Because she's so close to Justin Trudeau and she's, you know, may, may be blindsided to all these, um, you know, different, uh, this narrative that the prime minister has ultra, ultra rich friends and maybe, you know, doesn't care about ethics you all know, that much. I, I disagree with the fact that it falls to Katie Telford or it falls to Sophie Trudeau. It falls to Justin Trudeau to make the call about what works for Fair him. Yeah. And so I think no matter what kind of advice he's getting, good or bad on all of it, really make the call yourself. And if that's the call you're going to make, then you should wear the questions in question period yeah. for more than one day, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. At the same time, I mean, each time, you know, he doesn't see it as a problem, though. You know, he says, yeah. well, those are family friends. You know, I've went there dozens and dozens of times. Mm -hmm. I, I've been friends with them for more than 50 years. So visibly, he doesn't see a problem with what he did. So, mm -hmm. you know, he should have... You know, I, I'm saying, yes, ultimately, this is his decision, right? But he should have advisors out there, you know, uh, challenging him and telling him, hey, this is not a good idea and this is, you know, going to, to mm -hmm. go back to you. No question. Uh, I still although, think you know, it, it stops it, with him, though. Yeah, it's, it stops with him, except, though, he hasn't really had to pay a price for his past mistakes either. Like, exactly. it, I think it, it certainly uh, galvanizes... The narrative begins to add up. When you get into an election campaign, uh, it, this, I can remember uh, Brian Mulroney doing this with Pierre Elliott Trudeau. He, he, he put forward a positive vision uh, and then he, but he went after the, all the liberal scandals, and there are a lot of liberal scandals. And you know the funny thing about uh, Pauli, I saw what he put out on the weekend, which was a very inspirational uh, speech talking about ordinary people and how valuable they are and what they make, uh, their contribution to Canada. And you are the, you are the people that make this country. And then you say, oh, this is a, that's a stump speech that's going to be successful. Mm -hmm. And then he does these crazy tweets about. Uh, the CBC and uh, and uh, you know you know and you go like what are you doing because uh, there is a path to victory for Polyev but it, it's it's got to be one where there's a positive message and you guess you can paint the liberals uh, uh, negative negative light for a lot of things but you've got to get off this childish stuff that he seems to childish partisan stuff that he seems to be getting involved in. It's like he's not grown up. I think well, that what we're saying is that quickly. there's 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 competing narratives compete within so the liberals have a competing and challenge to yeah. carry a consistent narrative that they care for ordinary Canadians and they understand their financial plight. Poiliev also has a challenge because you know he while he seems to be going after big issues of importance to Canadians on that issue He's playing small ball and nastily, and it's not working to his favor. Okay. Well, well, my bad news is that we're out of time. No. My good news is you are the people that make this panel. So, <laughs> Bob Fife, Donovan Charles, Catherine Levesque, thank you for the time. Thank you. Thank you. As the Public Service Alliance of Canada continues its strike, other public service unions 
are encouraging their own members to show their support and to talk about that and what that means. We're now joined by Jennifer Carr. She is the president of the Professional Institute for the Public Service of Canada. Ms. Carr, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Listen, I think it's worthwhile to, to, to lay the groundwork, if you will, for people at home because while your union does represent uh, public service workers, it is separate from PSAC. Uh, can you explain who your members are? Yeah, so uh, my members are, um, uh, we are the second largest federal public service union. We represent 72,000 members across the country. We represent uh, occupations such as engineers, scientists, uh, auditors at the CRA, IT specialists, and healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. So again, separate from the striking workers right now, although you are uh, calling on your members to show their solidarity. and. and you're not asking them to strike, but you are asking them to join the picket. Yeah, so it's, uh, very clearly we are not in a strike position, um, but we recognize that we are bargaining with the same employer, so it's very important that we show solidarity with our brothers and sisters who are trying to get Treasury Board to come to the table with a fair and reasonable deal. Mm -hmm. uh, how do your members feel about their employer right now? So my mom, my members are upset uh, when you have a public service that uh, has worked effectively and efficiently for the last three years from a remote from home posturing uh, to be mandated uh, with no reason and purpose to come back to the office um, that hasn't been paid properly for the last seven years uh, thanks and by to the, the Phoenix system. Phoenix pay system. Um, you know, there, we have highly educated professional people who value their work as a public servant and the work they do on behalf of Canadians. And um, when it's more important to the government about where you sit versus the productivity that you provide to the government, that's disconcerting. Mm -hmm. Although when it comes to the current uh, conflict or the, I guess, the, the, the impasse with PSAC and the Treasury Board, Primarily, it's about wages, and to hear it from the Treasury Board, they are offering 9% across three years. They say that is what they believe is fair, and also, they make the argument if they were actually to give the union what they are asking for, it would make it far more difficult for the federal government to deliver critical services to Canadians. Yeah, so the first point uh, I'd like to say, uh, the PSAC is coming with an, uh, a request of 13.5%, um, and inflation matching the same period is 13.8. So they're not asking for anything more than to keep their wages stable with what inflation is driving. It's important that uh, people understand that PSAC has been at the table for more than two years. Uh, we're working backwards. We're getting uh, pay increases for the last two years. We're not looking into the future, We're just asking that those wages can keep pace. The, the cost of groceries, the cost of housing, um, transportation has all gone up, and those wages need to keep pace. But again, the, the, the Treasury Board is also making the argument that if they met the demand, that would have an impact on public services. I don't see that as, as a case. You know, we have enough money coming in uh, to the Treasury Board. My my members are actually auditors. They are, they are uh, willing and able to get the revenue that is necessary, not only to pay public service uh, workers what is necessary, but also to pay for social programs that are necessary, dental care, uh, transfers to provinces for health care. Um, but the government doesn't have the resources 
on site to collect those tax monies. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wonder how you feel, and this is just anecdotal, because I, I was driving into work listening to, to talk radio, and certainly of the voices that I was hearing, many people who are not sympathetic, rightly or wrongly, with public service workers, and they find it hard to believe that it is justifiable to walk off a job that is essentially secure, that also comes with good benefits and good pension. That's very interesting. Like I said, the frustration that we have, there's assumption um, that you know we're asking for a lot of things. With the return to work uh, order or mandate, um, our members are actually struggling to get the basics, like a desk. We want to work productively and effectively on behalf of Canadians. But if we're spending our time looking for desks, looking for um, you know proper places to sit, this is taking away from that productivity. Um, so I think they should be more uh, frustrated about the waste that is happening, um, the logistical nightmare that the government has created, uh, which hinders our ability to deliver those services to Canadians. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, it was interesting to listen to Mona Fortier as uh, she and other ministers uh, of the government were, were sitting during the press conference earlier this week because when she was asked about pay, she said uh, those who went on strike would get strike pay from the union, those who still continue to work would still get their pay. What did you make of that comment? It's a very subtle message asking um, members to break the picket line. I really think that um, the comment was a kind of a veiled uh, attempt to, to uh, break solidarity uh, from the line. Um, again, this government hasn't been able to pay its workers properly for the last seven years. So uh, one of the reasons um, members are angry and on the picket line is because they just want to be paid a, a proper wage that keeps up with inflation so that they can pay their bills. Quickly losing time here, uh, but given the fact that workers right now are this frustrated with their employer, in this case the federal government, and the federal government has not made any moves as of yet, are you worried about how long the strike might go? Uh, I'm not worried. I, I, I really think that because they're still at the table, this is very different from a strike where people walk away from the table. The PSAC is still a willing partner at the table with Treasury Board. We want to make a deal. They are just making sure that Treasury Board understands that uh, its workers are behind them and my workers uh, are also behind them because we need to make fair deals that meet inflation, but also are reasonable and, and have our rights that are secured. Ms. Carr, thank you for the time. Thank you. Well, thanks to Alberta's fixed election date, we know that we're now just five and a half weeks until voting day, with a writ expected to drop in about 10 days' time. So, to set up what is expected to be a close campaign in Alberta, we're joined right now by political analyst and columnist Graham Thompson. Graham, always good to see you. Thanks, Michael. Now, you know, when when this year began, pollsters were saying this upcoming vote would be a toss-up. Is that still the case, getting so close to the dropping of the writ? Yeah, it absolutely is. It's amazing to see an election like this. This, this is really unheard of in Alberta elections. Normally, we kind of know beforehand who's going to win. And not always. Big surprise in 2015 when the NDP won. But normally, right now, we've got, for the first time, we have a binary electoral system, political system, in Alberta, we've got the NDP and the UCP. The UCP is in government, but the NDP has a really good chance of winning, and the UCP has a really good chance of winning. There's 87 seats up for grabs. You need 44 to form a majority. 
And there's polls showing the UCP getting 44, 45, 46 seats, uh, a really slim majority. Also, polls can be read so that the NDP gets 44, 45 seats. It could come down to a really narrow, just a few seats, especially in Calgary. We're expecting Calgary to be the battleground. There's 26 seats here. Right now, the NDP only has three, UCP has 23. But a new poll out by um, Janet Brown, uh, who mm -hmm. did it for the CBC, she's a very well-respected pollster, was talking about the NDP winning maybe 18 seats in Calgary out of those 26. So this election could be a real toss-up, really close to call, unlike elections in the past. Now, how much of this boils down to Rachel Notley and Danielle Smith? How much of this boils down to the perception of the two leaders? Yeah, this is an interesting issue because, again, one of the um, questions on that poll I mentioned with Janet Brown just a matter of days ago was looking at um, how Calgarians, this is focused on Calgary, how Calgarians view the, the leaders. And most Calgarians see themselves as centrist on the political scale, not really left or right wing. And they view Notley's being kind of centrist, a little bit left, but centrist like them. And they view Daniel Smith as being way too far right wing. So this is a problem for, for Smith. In the past, we've seen a number of polls point to um, people tending to trust and like Rachel Notley, the NDP leader, much more than Danielle Smith, who just became premier, of course, just last year. So there's that trust factor, but also the sense of Calgarians, again, this is going to be the battleground. Mm -hmm. They see themselves more likely in Rachel Notley, more trust, and they like her better, see her as more like them than they do uh, Danielle Smith. And so the thing is, Danielle Smith is becoming a major issue in this campaign, and not for the better when it comes to the UCP. So yes, likability and trust is going to be a big factor, I think, in this election, dealing with the leaders, not just the policies that they're, they're projecting, but looking more at the leaders. Who do you trust the most? And it seems that Notley has the edge there. Well, you know, Danielle Smith did issue a, a paper uh, about reforming the equalization formula. And it makes me wonder, is positioning herself as a defender of Alberta rights, is that a key issue right now? Will that work in her favor? Yeah, this is, you're right. This is a big issue that UCP has used before. Conservatives have used over the years, you know, fight back against Ottawa, especially when you've got a liberal, federal liberal government in, in play. And so you've got, the UCP trying to make this an issue. You got Daniel Smith, of course, the Alberta Sovereignty Act that she brought in last year, fight back against Ottawa. And now you're right today, releasing a paper, looking at equalization, saying it's time to change equalization. Let's have Alberta deal with the other provinces to change equalization. This goes back to referendum in Alberta in 2021, when 60% or so of Albertans wanted to scrap equalization altogether. Of course, a province cannot scrap equalization. It's a federal program funded by federal dollars. But there's that narrative in Alberta politics that Ottawa is robbing us. In fact, Danielle Smith on a campaign trail last year to win the UCP leadership and become premier was talking about Ottawa stealing our money. They're robbing our money, she said. That's a very strong narrative, even though it's not true. It's a very strong narrative. We must fight back against Ottawa. So people want the premier to stand up to Ottawa. They don't like the Sovereignty Act, interestingly enough. So what's going to happen here is that they're putting the Sovereignty Act on the back burner and focusing more on let's be working with other provinces to try and change equalization. I'm not saying other provinces are particularly in favor of changing equalization, especially those who receive money under the equalization formula. But this is a tactic, an issue 
that the UCP is raising right now to take the focus away from Danielle Smith and all the controversy surrounding her and focusing it more on what can Alberta do to push back against Ottawa. And that is a common theme in Alberta politics, and it can be very effective and very popular. Well, we are watching, as we said, just 10 days away from uh, the dropping of the writ. Uh, Graham, always good to speak with you. Thank you for the time. My pleasure. Thanks. And that is our program for this evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again next time.